The lectionary gives us two sets of readings for Palm Sunday. The Liturgy of the Word, the Liturgy for the Main Service, includes a lengthy reading from Luke 22 and 23, or a slightly shorter reading that is the bulk of Luke 23. And that reading describes the dreadful movements of Jesus' last hours, from his meal with his disciples, his agony in the garden, the betrayal, the trial with its accusations, his condemnation, the bearing of his cross, the crucifixion. But I'm going to focus on the readings for the Liturgy of the Palms. Two texts, Luke 19, 28 to 41, and Psalm 118, 19 to 29. It's, it's easy for us to forget in part because it's such a staggering truth. But Jesus' story, Christians believe, is as much yours and mine as it is his. Jesus, we, we confess, is the, the being of God open to us in his becoming. So Jesus is God, living this human life from conception to death. And in that movement from conception to death, as he becomes the man he is when he dies, God, the infinite God, the eternal God, is, is made known, is made recognizable and shown to be trustworthy. And we are somehow mysteriously included in his being and his becoming. Meaning, we can be who we are and we can become who we are meant to be because he has made himself one with us. What happened to him happened to us. And therefore we live differently. We live in ways that are in keeping with Jesus and what has happened to him, what he said and did and what was said about him and done and done to him. This is the mystery that St. Paul encountered outside of Damascus for the first time. And Near the end of his life, Paul in prison, for the sake of Jesus and in the name of Jesus, articulates two sides of this mystery. There are other sides, but he articulates it. One in, in Colossians 1, in my flesh, he says, In my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And then in Ephesians 4, he encourages the believers in, in Ephesus, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. To grow up in every way into Christ. So, And that they do this by speaking the truth in love. So what you have here are, in a sense, these opposed aspects. You've got making up what is lacking in Christ and then growing up in every way into Christ. So Christ, the fullness of God, dwells in him bodily. And we are called to grow up into that same fullness. But we do that by enacting in our own lives all that has happened in Jesus' life. And so we, in that sense, complete what is lacking in his, in his afflictions. This is, of course, the mystery of the gospel. All that to say, as we contemplate, not merely study, but contemplate what the scriptures tell us about Jesus and what they tell us about what Jesus said and did, and about what was said about him and done to him, the truth of our own lives, the truth of your life, the truth of my life, begins to, to show itself. 
begins to emerge. We, we begin to be realized in our own personhood as we consider the revelation of Jesus in his own personhood. In the language of the psalm, Jesus is the gate of the Lord. Michel Henri says that Jesus is the relation to God as such. He simply is the relation to God. But Jesus is also, again in the language of the psalm, the righteous one who passes through the gates, or through the gate. The hearing of the gospel, Luke 19, in this case, bears him to us. So Luke 19, the reading for Sunday, is both the gate and the coming through the gate of Jesus, who is the gate. And if we receive that coming gladly, we will be opened up. We will become gates. We will begin to bear the Lord and to bear resemblance to the Lord and to become like him. And in that process, we'll become ourselves. Right? The more like him we are, the more we are ourselves. And this is why, as I, I say, I'm sure some of you are exhausted with hearing me say it. This is why the culminating fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The more I come to be like God, the more I am self-realized in my own uniqueness. So the, the gospel reading, again, Luke 19, 28, beginning there, describes Jesus going up toward Jerusalem. And if we've read the gospel of Luke, we know that Jesus has been to Jerusalem many times. In the opening chapters of the gospel, we read that Jesus is presented to the Lord in the temple on his 40th day. And it is in that moment right, that Simeon and Anna prophesy over Jesus and the Holy Family. We're told that Joseph and Mary offer a pair of doves or pigeons because they are poor, following the Leviticus 12 guidelines. And then toward the end of that chapter, we're told that his parents take him every year. They go up together every year for the Passover. So all of these first years of Jesus' life, he is in the temple. He is in Jerusalem. In his 12th year, and this, this story is only in Luke's gospel, they go up as usual, and when the festival ends, he stays behind, although his parents do not know it. He, he doesn't tell them he's going to do it. He doesn't ask them for permission to do it. Eventually, they realize he's missing. They find him three days later, after all kinds of searching, and they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions, listening and asking questions. And Mary, of course, chides him, if, if not out and out rebukes him, child, why have you treated us like this? And Jesus' response is astonishing. He seems taken aback by her surprise. Why are you searching for me? Did you not know, not know that I must be in my father's house? Or can be otherwise translated as busy with my father's business must be in my father's house or busy with my father's business. And I think it's, this is such a cute story that it's easy to miss the wonder of it, right? That Jesus would stay seemingly in the temple night and day for days engaged in this conversation as, as if he is living in the temple, living in the conversations made possible in that space. And he is completely, seems to be, completely caught off guard by 
Mary's and Joseph's surprise that this is abnormal. That this this seems to him to make all the sense in the world that that's where he would be and that this is what he would be doing in his father's house. And Luke tells us they did not know what he meant, but Mary contemplates it. We can assume, I think, that Jesus goes up, he, he returns home with them, and then we, we can assume that every year they return to Jerusalem. Although, surely after that experience, they, they come to Jerusalem differently and leave it differently. But the next time Luke mentions Jerusalem is in his account of the temptations. We're told that the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem. I think we are to assume that this is a kind of mental flight, that this is a, a mystical or psychological experience in which Jesus is consciously aware, even though he's bodily in the wilderness, mentally, spiritually, he's in Jerusalem. And he's delivered to the pinnacle of the temple, and the devil goads him to throw himself down as proof of his uniqueness. And then after his transfiguration, which is described in Luke 9, Jesus, we're told, sets his face toward Jerusalem. And it's very clear that he knows what will happen to him when he gets there, right? that this is his last journey of many to the city. He foretells his fate three times, lastly in Luke 18. In, in one village, and this we get this story in Luke 13, in one village on his way to Jerusalem, it's not specified which, he's warned by the Pharisees, I'll come back to that point in a moment, that Herod wants to kill him. And his reply is telling, we talked about this a few weeks ago, go and tell that fox that reply. And he says, in the midst of it, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. So today and tomorrow I'm healing and exercising, exorcising, but on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. So he's saying all, all of this work the work of healing, the work of exorcism, the, the power of God that's coming to drive out the forces of death. He's moving toward Jerusalem in that power, but the forces of death are headquartered in Jerusalem so that as he gets nearer to the city, he comes closer to the heart of the resistance to God. He comes closer to the heart of the principalities and powers that have set themselves against the will of God and the word of God. And right in that moment of defiance to Herod, he grieves for the city he has come to love, the city where he was first presented to God, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Remember that language of stones, those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So even at this point, Jesus is aware that this is his last journey, that he's moving into the, the headquarters of the forces of death. He knows that this city that he loves is filled with people who will hate him and that he will go up like a hen to be devoured by the fox. 
that he will go up to be stoned. And his reception will be glad. There will be singing. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But his end will be, will be as a curse. And all that brings us back to the text for today, Luke 19, 28 to 40. And let me take a moment to read it because I want you to hear now the nuances. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. And side note, it's it's remarkable to me that he predicts so much of what will happen, but does not predict whether or not someone will ask why they are in tiny. It's as if he leaves room for a kind of freedom on the part of the owners of the cult. They might They might not ask, but if they do ask, Simply say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent, the two disciples, depart and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? And they said, just as they were told to say, the Lord needs it. Now, we don't know their tone. They might not have said it in exactly the same tone as Jesus said it, but they do say what they were told to say. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So remember that image. They bring the colt back, they throw their their cloaks on the colt, and then they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, This is just as Jesus prophesied. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. So there's a warning here, much as there had been in that that passage about the threat of Herod. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. What I want to consider now is what this story says to us about our own lives, or really not just what it says to us, but what it does to us when it's quickened by the Spirit, when we are quickened by the Spirit, what this story does to us so that we begin to come alive in new ways and our lives become differently livable. The truth of this story, I think, opens out on the Paschal Mystery. This is the the Sunday of the week of the passion, right? We are, we are beginning the journey that will culminate in Good Friday and Holy Saturday. The truth of this story opens out on that mystery. And as we attend to it, again, not simply study it with some kind of critical distance, but let ourselves be absorbed by it as it settles down into our bones, it passions us, right? It pascalizes us. Christ comes to us in this story. Christ comes to us as we welcome him. He comes to us in our obedience. He comes right to the center of our resistance to God and frees us to go with him so that we can bound like him to the cross, live his passion, 
as his companions in intercession for the sake of the world. So let me let me unpack what I think this story is bringing to bear about our own lives and what God is doing in our lives, how the life of God is being lived in us so that we can live. First, Christ comes to us as we welcome him. Jesus, Luke tells us, is descending from the Mount of Olives, and some in the crowd are throwing cloaks on the ground, on the road ahead of him. This probably signals that they see him as a royal, a, a rightful heir, or the rightful heir to the throne in Jerusalem. It may be that they have done this for others, for other dignitaries. It may be that they're only doing it for him. It does seem clear, however, that he is claiming for himself the prophecy of Zechariah. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And his disciples, Luke is careful to say that it is his disciples, his disciples begin to throng around him, processing with him and singing over him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice again, it's, it's, it's become a kind of truism that the same crowd that celebrated his entrance to Jerusalem just days later cried out for his blood. But that's almost certainly not true, right? That there may have been some in both gatherings. But Luke tells us it's his disciples, those who are grieving when they see him die, who are singing here. Of course, in this singing, they don't know what they're singing about. They have no idea what he's about to do. They have no idea what is about to be done to him. They cannot imagine what his enthronement will mean, what his enthronement will be, or what it will mean for them or for their children, for their city, for their world. They are, I think we can say, playing the part of children. They're, they're singing songs they do not at all understand. But they are not wrong to sing. That, that I think, is, is the point to stress. They welcome him, and they welcome him without having any real sense of what is about to happen, but they do welcome him. So childish as it is, it may be, their joy is the breaking forth, a kind of birth pang for the truth of their being. They are beginning to become themselves as he is realizing himself on their behalf. But Luke tells us that some Pharisees do think the disciples are wrong to sing. They, they encourage Jesus to quiet them. Now, this may be because they are afraid that the Pharisees are afraid that such an entrance to the city will be read as a threat by Herod or Caiaphas or Pilate. We know from earlier in, in the book that they were concerned about Herod being provoked to jealousy by Jesus. They may also be upset or disturbed that Jesus' disciples are singing a song about the Messiah in relation to Jesus, who is, who is for them, for the Pharisees, only a teacher. Regardless, they, they are assuming a role that is not theirs to play. They're policing Jesus' entrance. And you, you don't need me to draw those lines of connection, that the temptation each of us faces to police the comings and goings of Jesus and the response of Jesus' disciples to his comings and goings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw this clearly that successful Christians, which is essentially a contradiction in terms, are liable to Pharisaism. Now, not all Pharisees, and Bonifer again makes this clear, not all Pharisees were Pharisaical in this sense, just as not all Puritans were Puritanical. Uh, 
But in as much as we, we consider ourselves successful Christians, if we're not careful, our innocence, whether that's real or imagined innocence, will set us at odds with God's goodness. Howard Thurman, mentor for MLK, talked often about the movement from innocence to goodness. And that is exactly, I think, what we see playing out around Jesus, that there are those who are not at all innocent, and they run to Jesus with abandon. But those who are innocent or imagine themselves to be innocent often set themselves at odds with Jesus and interfere with those who are coming to Jesus with abandon. And, and that truth, I think, holds across times and across spaces. If we think of ourselves as innocent, we will presume, it will be hard for us not to presume, it is our responsibility to guard that purity. And that will set us at odds with the God who's not concerned about purity, at least not in the ways that we are. So we must, we must learn, we lust. See, there's a, there's a nice Freudian slip for you. We must learn to care more about the good God wants to do for others than we do about our own reputation, our own safety, our own success, our own quote unquote goodness. Right? We, we have to care more about the genuine goodness of God that he desires for our neighbor than we do our own imagined goodness, our own moral uprightness, our own, the, the cleanness of our conscience. Otherwise, we will do what we will do exactly what the Pharisees do here. We will police the comings and goings of Jesus, and we will exchange songs for accusations, lectures, charges. So Christ comes to us as we welcome Him. Christ comes to us in our obedience. It's it's easy to forget this. For Christ to come, He must be born. B o r n e. He must be carried along. As I said already, in the language of the psalm, he is the gate of God, the relation to God as such, but he needs us to prepare his way. In the text, he sends two disciples out to find a burden-bearing creature and tells them to say, if they are questioned, the Lord has need of it. Of course, Jesus as God needs nothing, but he cannot be what we need him to be except by taking on our neediness as his own and by making himself dependent on our care. There is one, this is a fascinating detail in the psalm, there is a gate of the Lord, and then there are the gates of righteousness. So the gate of the Lord, the gates of righteousness, Psalm 118, 19, and 20. So that he, the gate of the Lord, makes it possible for us to become the gates of righteousness. And thanks to the Spirit, our lives can become openings for Jesus to come and go in the embrace of his Father for the sake of others. I think that's another way of making the same point is to talk about the church as the body of Christ or the temple of the Spirit. It, we become openings, availabilities, the sites of God's presence and absence for, for the good of those around us. But that's possible only because he takes our neediness and makes himself dependent upon us freely, needlessly, but really. St. Augustine makes this point, drawing on Matthew's version of this text, in this remarkable sermon on obedience preached in Carthage in 404, in the year 404, I think. 
And it's <clears throat> the day after there had been a fiasco. He, he, had, he was supposed to have preached the previous day on the feast day, but there's a kind of ruckus in the crowd and he storms off annoyed and doesn't preach it. And the next day at the direction of the Bishop of Carthage, he comes back and preaches a sermon on obedience to a crowd he had just offended and to a crowd filled with, with people who were being swayed by Donatus teaching. So he ends that sermon. So he, he has to thread a needle here and he's walking a, a very fine line, but he ends that sermon with an appeal to the story, Matthew's version of the story of the cult. Let me read just a bit of it to you. Which are you, my brothers and sisters, and which do you want to be? The ones untying the foal or the fold? Perish the thought, I mean, that you should be the ones who had tied up the foal. And yet even they, the owners, didn't raise any objection. So which do you want to be, my brothers and sisters, those who untied the foal or the foal itself? You dare not claim for yourselves the role of those the foal was untied by. The apostles did this. You are the foal. Be obedient to those who are leading you off to carry the Lord. So this is the way he kind of stresses the point. Be obedient to those who are leading you off to carry the Lord. Of course, my dearest friends, you must reflect on the manner in which the disciples untied the foal and led it along to the Lord. They were leading it, and it was following them. I mean, they weren't dragging it while it was digging in its heels. And then he, but he then goes on to say, actually, the disciples, once they untied it, were following the foal. So he, he makes this, this play that at the end, even though the disciples are obeying, the apostles are obeying and untying the colt and leading it, in a sense, the colt knows what it is to do, and the disciples are following its lead. There's no conflict. There's no dragging. The, the colt is not digging in its heels, and the disciples are not driving it along with a whip. And that's what he wants for that congregation in Carthage. So, I, But I think if we use his language and come back to this text, it says something about the kinds of lives we are meant to live with each other, with those who have authority in our lives, and with, our, and with ourselves. Right? Disciples in this reading do as they're told. They say what they're told to say. But I want to point out that they do more than that. They also spontaneously throw their cloaks on the donkey. You know, earlier in, in Luke, in, in the so-called Sermon on the Plain, Jesus taught them to be ready to give their coat to anyone in need, and not only their coat, but their shirt also. But in this moment, they, they not only give because of need, but out of a kind of spontaneous, pure springing up of generosity. And we're told that they set Jesus on the colt. Of course, Jesus could have mounted it himself. I mean, it's, again, a foal. But they needed him to let him, they needed, they needed him to let them serve him. They needed him to let them serve him. Another way of talking about this is to say that Jesus, of course, is, is our sanctifier. He's the one who washes us in the holiness of God, who fills us up with the fire, the consuming fire of the Spirit. But, Scripture tells us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, 1 Peter 1. So I think what we have here is, again, the mystery of his work in us being inseparable from our work in him and for him. He sanctifies us in our sanctifying of him. As we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, he is, in fact, sanctifying us. As we worship him, he is, in fact, worshiping us, dignifying us. As we 
obey him, he is in fact bringing to fulfillment what we most truly desire. The colt, as Augustine said, needed to be untied. Once it's loosed, it does its work without digging in its heels. But I'm, I do want to take issue with Augustine here. I'm not sure the, the owners are to blame for tying it up. Perhaps they were. I don't think so. Regardless, they, they let it go without a word. The disciples, we could argue, obey hilariously. They, they obey in joy. The donkey obeys meekly. It does what it has to do. It's not like Balaam's ass. It doesn't say anything. It, it simply is true to its being. The owners obey just by not interfering. And often, Bonifer, I think, identifies this exactly in Life Together. Often that is what is needed of us. And that's all that is needed, is needed of us. So sometimes we're the ones whose efforts bring Jesus to bear in the world. Sometimes we're the apostles who unloose the, the cult. Sometimes we're the cult. Most of the time, however, we're, we're the ones who simply have to keep our mouths shut and stay out of the way. And co a couple more points quickly. Christ comes right to the heart of our resistance to God. And for those of you who haven't read it, make sure you, you look at Bonhoeffer's life together and the section on ministry in which he argues that ministry is, of course, speaking the word of God, but that has to arise from silence, silence in the presence of God and holding our tongue, not saying what we could say to the people around us. So we, we, we need to be like the owners of the cult, who even when we're not sure what is happening, we, we bite our tongues. So Christ comes right to the heart of our resistance to God, right to the center. He comes to the Jerusalem within us, the stronghold in the depths of our heart, where the word of God has so often been put to death. As Jesus says, it's in Jerusalem where the prophets die. That There's a reason the prophets die there. There's a reason that the word of God dies there, that, that the principalities and powers have their stronghold in the holy city within us. And that's because that stronghold holds strongly untruths, in particular the fear of death. So, so that we kill the prophets because they stir up in us the fear of death. We, we sense that to follow the word of the Lord will lead to the cross, and so we resist. As Peter resists, as Judas resists, Christ comes to us as he came to the temple in his lifetime again and again. He comes to Jerusalem, as we've seen, over and over and over again, year after year. And as in his 12th year, he comes to us to listen as well as to talk. I mean, he, Christ within us in the temple, in the depths of our heart, is listening as well as talking. But eventually he comes triumphantly. He comes victoriously. He comes on a donkey, not in a chariot, not on a war horse or a war elephant. But he does come triumphantly. When we're ready, at the right time, he comes to cleanse the temple within us and to die within us in such a way that we die with him. And he comes to cleanse the temple within us by invading, in a sense, in, in the way that only he can, that space that has become, wrongly become, a place of transaction and clearing out the tables, flipping, flipping them and driving out the animals and 
dashing our hopes that we we can manage or calculate what matters most. And he, by banishing transaction from that place at the center of us, he makes it possible for us to know God the way he knows God in, in the intimacy of, of sonship, the intimacy of absolute dependency and equality. And that and that alone frees us to join him in the bearing of his cross, frees us to, to live and die with him in his passion. So, last word. You notice he says, when the Pharisees tell him to quiet his disciples, he says he cannot. Because if he were to do so, the stones would cry out. And I think there is, in some way, a relation between the stones crying out and the stoning of the prophet that we need to attend to. That when, when we do not receive Christ rightly. When we pharisaically resist the coming of Christ to our own hearts, the coming of Christ to the hearts and lives of others, when we do that, the stones will cry out because we will stone the word of the Lord. We will take up stones, not without sin. We will take up stones and, and dash to death those who are bringing the word of the Lord. We will crucify Christ afresh. So it's it's essential. It's essential that we not police the coming of God. That we not police the coming of God to others. And we don't police the coming of God to us. He is coming. He is coming the way he knows is best for us. And we, we must not try. We must resist the temptation to manage how he comes. We must resist the temptation to try to make Jesus presentable. We, we simply have to welcome him. Let him come right to the heart of our resistance. Clear away all the transactions. And then we must go with him into his passion.